please turn with me to doll 2, verse 12 to 13. That's doll 2, verse 12 to 13. And please follow along um, as I read from the English Standard Version. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rain your heart with and not your lungs. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is the word of God. Thanks, Joan. Uh, hello, uh, welcome again to Kingsway. I know it's like a little bit hot today, it's a little bit sticky. We're kind of blessed to be in a lovely a country like Australia where we get to enjoy good weather but it does get a bit hot so can we turn to the person next to us and give them a, a fan and say I'm your fan <laughs> that's so funny okay all right all right, all right welcome all right, if you're joining us maybe for the first time or you've kind of dropped in after a few weeks uh, we're going through a series called the Life Series. This is actually the last week of this series. Uh, we've been in this series for five weeks. This has been our kind of topical sermon uh, based on a Get to Know Jesus, Get to Know Christianity course. So originally you'd sit down with a small group of people and you go through it seminar style, uh, but we're just taking all of Kingsway through it in like a sermon version. I just thought it'd be important for us all to know this stuff. It's foundational, uh, especially as we start implementing this at Kingsway a few times a year you'll know what you're inviting your friends to, okay? But we're at the last week. And today we're talking about uh, this question. We're trying to answer this question. What is a Christian? Uh, what is a Christian? Over the five, four weeks, uh, we've talked about stuff like life to the full right, and how Jesus says that he is the one who gives life to the full and you just need to believe in him. Uh, we looked at, um, you know, can we believe in the Bible, right? Is it reliable, especially the New Testament? And I don't know if I convinced you, but you know, I found that the New Testament is not just some thing that someone created in a dark room, but there's real evidence for reasons why we should believe in what we find in the Bible. Uh, in the third week, I talked about you know, why did Jesus need to die? Right? The justice of God and the mercy of God come together at the cross. Uh, last week, I asked, you know, what happens after death? Right? And we talked about how Jesus rose from the dead. And if he really did then we can know that we too can rise from the dead. And so today we're looking at this question, uh, what is a Christian? Now what were you doing on Tuesday, the 5th of June, 2018, at 3 a.m.? Right? You probably don't know, but I'm pretty sure you were just sleeping, like most uh, normal people would be doing. Uh, but for me, at 3 a.m. on that day, I was wide awake, because it was the annual uh, Apple keynote, <laughs> WWDC, um, and so I put on an alarm, it was like Christmas for me, and woken up uh, early just to watch you know, Apple announce you know, the new iOS and all that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of an Apple fanboy, if you don't know that already. Anyway, uh, for that year, 2018, 3am, uh, they kicked off the keynote with this video uh, that I found quite funny. Now, I don't know if you're going to find it funny, you can look it up on YouTube, uh, but they did like a parody video on like that David Attenborough of software developers, right? So already I can see, you know, find funny. Um, so they were like, you know, the software developer uh, once a year migrates to WWDC, right? And they uh, 
they squint at daylight because they're normally nocturnal creatures, right? Because software developers are, okay, all right, don't worry. Anyway, I wondered, you know, if they made a parody video of Christians, right? David Attenborough was to, you know, kind of narrate the Christian and describe what a Christian was like, I wonder what they would say. Right? How would you describe a Christian? If an alien came out of space, and I'm not saying aliens exist, but if an alien came and they observed Christians and they said, this is what you need to identify a Christian, right, what would they say makes a Christian? Right? What is a Christian? Maybe they talk about how Christians make this weekly pilgrimage to their sanctuary, right, the church. Right? Sometimes it's an old building. Sometimes it's a school. Right? Oftentimes it's an abandoned warehouse. Right? Christians have peculiar habits, they might say. Before they eat, they close their eyes and they mumble something under their breath. Or they push fish, put fish stickers on their cars. Or maybe Christians have this fascination with, with singing particular songs. Or they avoid certain parts of the city at, late at night. Or they don't participate in certain activities or they don't say certain words. Right? Is that what makes a Christian? Right, that's the question we're looking at today. What is a Christian? The first thing I want to say, right, I want to say two things a Christian is not. And the first thing is that a Christian is not achieved. Right? To be a Christian is not something that you do. Again, the examples I gave are things that, you know, people do. Right? You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you put a fish sticker on your car. Right? Is that what makes up a Christian? Right? These things are not what makes a person a Christian. Right? These things are important. But at the heart and the core of what makes a Christian a Christian, these are not it. Right? It is something else. In fact, you can have a person who does every single one of these things, the things that you might think a Christian does, and not be a Christian at all. And we see this in various places, but Jesus tells a parable, right? the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. And in this parable, Jesus describes two kinds of people. One is a Pharisee, which is a religious Jewish leader at the time. And the other is a tax collector, an occupation that was generally despised upon by all fellow Jews. In verse 11, it says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So in terms of achievement, this Pharisee was up there. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader, which meant that he had a devotion to his religion unlike anyone else. He must have been smart enough, studious enough to take this role. And he says with his own words, I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. But I'm not like this tax collector. He fasts twice a week. So twice a week he gives up food so he can you know, hopefully focus on God and he gives a tithe of all he gets, right? all of his money. He gives it back to God. And in contrast, we have this tax collector. And in verse 13, the only thing we really know about him is that he is a sinner. And so on one hand, you've got a man who has achieved a lot. And on the other hand, you have a man who has achieved kind of not much, very bad things really. And shockingly, in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, right, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
the tax collector. The only thing we know about him is that he is a sinner. He goes back home right with God and not this man who has achieved a lot. There's a lot of things going on here, but one of the things that we can point out is that achievement is not the way to be a Christian. You don't do something to make yourself right with God. All the things I named. Even though a Christian does these things, go to church, read your Bible, pray. You don't do these things to become a Christian. They're very different things. Christians do these things, but you don't do those things to become a Christian. Being a Christian is not achieved. The second thing, being a Christian is not something you inherit. There's a lot of things in your life that you inherited. You were born into it. Maybe your height, your eye color, your hair color, the personality traits, you know, the way that you argue. I feel like I don't know, you learn it of someone or you kind of inherit it. But being a Christian is not one of those things. We hear quite often, I was born a Christian, but that's not a thing. You're not born a Christian. You don't inherit it by default. You can be born into a Christian family. You can be born with Christian parents who then influence you, hopefully for good. But that is different from being born a Christian. There's no such thing as being born a Christian. John the Baptist, he talks to the religious leaders who thought this way, right? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. So these Jewish religious people would say, we're we're okay with God because we were born into this faith, basically. We can trace our father, 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 all the way back to Abraham. And so we're okay with God. And John the Baptist says, you can't say that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That is to be a part of the family of God is not something you just simply are born into. God can make a child of God Right, out of anyone. Right? It's not something you inherit. And the fact that the Christian faith then, or being a Christian, is not something achieved and not something inherited is actually really good news for us. Right? It's really good news for you. Because in life, right, as we live in this world, there are certain things that if you don't achieve it, you miss out. Right? Because you're not smart enough or rich enough. You don't get to maybe socialize with certain people. You don't get to go on first-class tickets around the world because you're not rich enough, right? There are certain things that unless you achieve it, you miss out. And the truth is, maybe we miss out on a lot of stuff in life. And if being a Christian, or being right with God was something we had to achieve, then that would mean a lot of people are automatically left out. Right? If you remember my sermon from a few weeks ago, I had that ladder, 0 to 10. Right? If you had to achieve what God's standard was, the truth is, we'd all miss out. Because God's standard is perfection. It's right at the top, 10 out of 10. And so it's an incredible and thankful thing that being a Christian is not something you achieve. You don't have to do something to be a Christian. You don't even have to be here in church, even though that's a very good thing. You don't have to read your Bible to be a Christian, even though you probably should. You don't have to pray, even though you will. To be a Christian, technically, you don't have to these things and it's a great thing that it's not inherited 
Because there are a lot of opportunities in this world that you miss out on because you're not born into it. I don't know if you've ever like, watched doc, uh, you know, reality shows or things on TV where people are just born into prosperity. And because they're born into it, they just, you know, they're born into a mansion and, and they, they have like five cars and they're born into that and because they're born into it, they have a list of opportunities that they get to be involved with. But that's not the way it is with being a Christian. The great thing is that because you don't have to inherit it, none of us are excluded from it. What a Christian is. Mark 1, 14, 15. This is the opening words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God. And Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what makes you a Christian. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now I'm going to spend the rest of our time looking at repent and then believe. But let me just for a moment talk about the gospel. We've talked about the gospel through this series. Let me just elaborate again. The gospel translated literally is the good news. Let me begin with the bad news. The bad news first is that you and I are sinners. That's what the Bible says. We are sinners who sin. And because of our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God, our relationship with Him is severed. We're not right with God. And because of our sin, we deserve judgment, we deserve death, and we deserve hell. That's the bad news. The good news is that God didn't leave us in that place. That God acted in love and mercy, which is why Jesus came to the earth. God became a man. God was born, God lived, and God died. And as Jesus lived, he lived the perfect life you and I should live, but we have failed to live. And then he died on the cross, the sinner's death, that you and I should die, right? We deserve to die, but we now no longer need to because Jesus died in our place. And then he rose from the dead to show that he really accomplished everything that he said he would. That's the gospel. We're meant to repent and to believe in that. That is what makes you Christian. Believe, not do. Faith. It's free. It's instant. You can make that decision now. But it's an incredible thing. That's the good news. Let me talk a little bit about faith. What is faith? I'm going to begin with what it's not. Three things faith is not. Faith is not a rational belief. The Enlightenment philosopher, Immanuel Kant, he said, I have found it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. I found it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. And what he's saying, which we're disagreeing with, he's saying that in order to have faith, you've got to throw knowledge out the window. Right? Knowledge, logic, etc. And that's not what faith is. Right? Faith isn't like, well, everything says no, but I'm going to say yes. Right? That's not faith. Right? We've spent our time through this series looking at some logical things. Evidence. Right? Reasons why you should believe. Right? Logic is not opposed to faith. Right? Logic can help you take that final step of faith. 
Right? Faith is not just positive thinking. Right? Nowadays, we hear the word faith used quite a lot, even from people who aren't religious. Like when a hard situation arises, they say, keep the faith. Right? Have faith. Right? But what, what do they mean? And most of the time, they just mean be positive. I believe that somehow, some way, things are going to work out. Right? Why? Just. just it's just going to work out. Not, not because of someone or something. Just have positive thinking and somehow it will be good. Right? But that's not what faith is. Faith is actually anchored on a specific something, if not a specific someone, right? which is God. It's not just positive thinking. It's positive thinking in the person of God. Right? The third thing. Faith is not just knowing facts. A lot of people who grow up in the church know a lot of facts. And you can be a person who knows all the answers. Right? You do a quiz about the Bible and you get 100% and still not have faith. Right? Facts, again, is, is good. It's helpful. Right? But it can take you only so far. And then you need to make that choice to have faith. Right? Believe. So what is faith? I, I want to define it like this. Trust. Right, it's not just knowledge, but it's, it's that extra step to, to trust. To trust and then it shows up in action. Right, Hebrews 11 verse 1, the author of Hebrews says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that phrase hoped for can also be tra- translated as confidence. So you've got words like this. Faith is assurance, confidence, conviction. Assurance, confidence, conviction. So it's not just an airy-fairy, I want to vaguely believe in something and I'm not sure. It's not just positive thinking, it's this confidence, it's this trust in something. This trust that is so certain that it will then show up in your thinking, in your feeling, and then in the way that you live. But that's what faith is. The ESV study Bible, it says it like this, right? When talking about this verse, biblical faith is not blind trust in the face of contrary evidence. It's not an unknowable leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is a confident trust. Right? Biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy, the God who has revealed himself in his word, and in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith is this trust, not in nothing, but in someone, in God, and all that he has said about Jesus. And then when you read the rest of Hebrews 11, we get to see how faith shows up in people's lives. If you know Hebrews 11, uh, it's just got a list of all these different people who do these great things out of faith. Right, by faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, Moses did that. By faith, you know, it just lists, it just lists a whole lot of people. By faith. Right, so faith is a trust that then shows up in your life. Imagine that you're out on a holiday, at a beach, enjoying your time, and then someone runs up to you, breathless, panicked, and they're half, like, they're running out of breath, they're shouting, but they can't really shout, and they say to you, get off the beach. Right? A tsunami is about to hit right, this beach. 
in that instance, trust, right? If you really trusted the person and you trusted what they said, you wouldn't just say, oh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's good, that's interesting, and stay there, right? Because trust would then change how you think, it would change how you feel, right, if you really believed, and then it would change what you do, right? Trust in the gospel doesn't leave us the same place we were to really trust will change your thinking, your feeling, and then your life, right? It's trust in action. That's faith. Trust in action. So to believe in the gospel means to trust a whole lot of things. To trust that Jesus really was a person, a real life, God coming down to the earth in flesh. It means to trust that heavy news that you and I are sinful to our core that we deserve judgment by God and death and hell. It's to trust that Jesus lived the perfect life. He never disobeyed God. He never did anything wrong. To trust that when he died on the cross, he took your sins. He paid the price for your sins. To trust right, that he can make you right with the Father. To trust right, that faith in him would give you the Spirit. And that, those things I just said, will then change everything in your life. To really trust that there's a hell will change your life. To really trust that there is a God will change your life. To really trust that the God who exists came to save you will change your life, right? If you really believed in those things, it would show up in action. Trust, right? That's how I want to define faith. It's, it's not just a knowledge. It's not, not just a yes, that's interesting, to really trust in Jesus and then be changed. Now, I just want to clarify something here. Before I said that being a Christian is not achieved. And sometimes when we hear, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, uh, we, we kind of get that wrong and we start depending on faith as if faith saves us. Right? As if, like, I've got, I've got to have faith. I've got to have enough faith. Do I have enough faith? I, th I think I have enough faith. Now, now I'm saved because I've got the faith. Now I'm saved. Right? Right? It's not faith that saves you. It's Jesus. You need to have faith in Jesus, but, but they're slightly different. Right? I, know, I just confused you. Right? I'm just going to clarify what I mean. It's not the measure of faith that saves you. It's the object of faith. Right, there's a slight difference there. It's not the measure of your faith that saves you. It's not, it's not because you believed 100% that you're saved. It's the object. It's Jesus that saves you. Let me give you an analogy. I recently saw a clip, a YouTube clip of an Australian woman uh, bungee jumping. Uh, not in Australia, right? So don't worry about this. Somewhere overseas. Um, I should have probably found out where it was so we don't go there. Anyway, she was jumping. Uh, she fell... And when she hit the bottom, uh, when the cord is extended and it's meant to like, kind of bring her back, the cord snapped. Right? And you just see her body fall. Uh, she's alive, the comments say. She falls into the river and like, everyone's like, ooh, and, you know, but she, she survived. No matter how much faith this lady had in the rope, let's say she was 100% confident that this rope's going to save my life. This rope's going to keep me. Right? This rope won't let me go. It's not about the measure of a faith. It's about the object. Will the object where she's putting her faith into, will that save her life? Right? That's what matters at the end of the day. 
But similarly, it's not the measure of your faith, it's the object. If you put your faith in something that will not save you, no matter how confident you are, it will not save you. But even if you have not a perfect faith, but a faith enough in Jesus that you will take a leap of faith, right, leap, then he will save you. Right? It's not the measure. Let me give you another example. Imagine two people are getting onto a plane. Person one is 100% confident in the plane and the pilot. They're like, I'm not scared. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to get to the destination. They get onto the plane. They're whistling, listening to music. That's person one. Person two is, is like fearful. Right? They're not sure. They trust in planes. They're not certain about the pilot. He looks a little dodgy, let's say. But they, they, they trust a, like a little bit enough to get onto the plane. Right? They buckle themselves in, but they're sweating. They, they go from, oh, it's going to be okay, to, oh, I'm not sure, to it's going to be okay. Right? They have that kind of faith. Let me ask you a question. Which of the two people will get to the destination? Right, the destination is heaven, okay? Which of the two people will get to the destination? Both. Right, both. Because again, it's not the measure of faith. It's not because I have zero doubts. But you have enough faith to take that step. And then the plane will get you to the destination. Right, Jesus, he will get you there. Not because you have great faith. It's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus. Now, your faith will determine what your journey is like. The person with 100% faith, when they hit turbulence and they go up and down, right, they'll be okay. Filled with hope. Maybe they'll laugh it off. The person with weaker faith will feel the up and down way more. They'll feel the anxiety. They'll feel the doubts. But they'll get to the destination anyway. Right? That's what it's like with the Christian life. If you have faith, it doesn't matter. If you, as long as you have enough faith to get on the plane, Jesus will save you. But along the journey, right, the strength of your faith will affect what that journey is like. Do you have faith in Jesus? The late John Stott, in his book, uh, Basic Christianity, he reflects on his personal journey to believe in Jesus, and he says this, I thank God that he later opened my eyes to see that I must do more than face up to the fact that I needed a saviour, more even than admit that Jesus Christ was the saviour I needed, it was necessary to accept him as my saviour. Right? We don't just look at Jesus and say he's a saviour. We don't just look to Jesus and say he's the saviour. We need to get to a point where we say he's my saviour and we put our faith in him. Right? Do you believe do you trust in Jesus, who he is, and what the Bible says he has done? If you do, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, right, has faith, believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Believe. If you were to believe at this moment, for the first time in your life, right? as simple as that, instantaneously, you will go from death to life. You will be a person who once stood in judgment before God because of your sins, and now you will not be in judgment. Just like that. And you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to achieve it. You didn't have to inherit it. Jesus has done it for you. That is faith. Now let's look at 
repentance. Let me point out four things then. Repentance is not. Jesus said, believe in the gospel and repent. Believe is trusting in Jesus. Let's look at repentance. What isn't it? Repentance is not diminishing your sins. Repentance begins with a good, hard look at your sins and accepting it for the horrendous and horrific thing that it is. That it is disgusting and that it displeases God. And not watering that down. Right? That's where repentance begins. You can't just say, oh, well, I've had a hard life. God will understand. Right? You don't want to diminish sin. That's not what repentance is. Feel the full weight of sin and then run to the cross and feel the full freedom that comes from Jesus. But repentance is not diminishing your sin. Second, it's not managing your sin. When Jesus says repent, it's not, okay, I'm going to wind back a little bit. Last year I stole a million dollars, but this year I'm just going to steal you know, 100,000 and we're going to be okay. I'm just going to stay here because I'm doing better than I was before. That's not repentance. Often we do that. Right? We just take a few steps back until it's more manageable, until it's acceptable, but that is not what repentance is. Repentance isn't managing sin, it's eliminating it completely. Right? It's the desire, really, I should say. It's a longing to eliminate it completely. And so it's about direction. Right? I want to look to a place where I commit no more sin, and that's where I want to be. Now, you may not be there now. That's okay. But are you trying to eliminate sin? We can't just say, I used to sleep around, but now look at porn, it's okay. I used to get into physical fights, but now I just get into verbal arguments, that's okay. It's that repentance is trying to eliminate it completely. That's the heart of repentance. Third, repentance is not manipulating God. When we repent, we don't say, God, I'm going to change these areas of my life. Can you fix these areas of my life? God, I'm going to give this up. Oh, fine, God, I'll, I'll, I'll give this up, but, but you've got to give me this other thing. That is not repentance. Repentance comes to God and says, God, you have given me far more than I have ever deserved in Jesus. I surrender my life to you. Right? I want to follow you. Fourth, repentance is not confession or remorse alone. Now, remorse and confession are very important things. Remorse being, I feel bad about what I've done. Very important. Confession is saying sorry. Very important. But those things alone aren't repentance. Repentance takes it a, a step further than that. Right, to, to give an analogy, uh, yesterday, Ruben uh, was playing with Zoe, and he gets a bit rough. You know, Ruben's my four-year-old, Zoe's um, like nine months. Um, and he... he puts his head really close to Zoe and he ends up like headbutting her. And we're like, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he says, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then we try to explain to him, right, you need to stop doing this because you're hurting Zoe. Right? But he goes, I said I'm sorry. Right? I said I'm sorry. Right? My kid's great, by the way. Um, but that's not repentance. Right? He said sorry. And maybe he meant it. But repentance is then to take a step further and say, so I now want to change. 
right, the things that I've done. Right? I don't want to make those same mistakes. So what is repentance? If faith in a word is trust, repentance in a word is turn. Joel chapter 2, it says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Right, this, is a, this is a convicted, determined, returning to God, not I'm going to still dabble around with sin, right, feeling the remorse, but then acting it, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Two more verses, Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So Matthew is saying that repentance is more than just confession or remorse. It should then produce a certain transformation in your life. Repentance is turning away from the, the life that used to chase sin and love sin. Right, that's where we were. We were people who turned our back on God, were chasing after sin to decide, right, because you are grieved by sin and say, I, I cast that aside now completely and I turn my back on sin. It's not that you've got it right. It's not you've completely fixed up your life, but you've turned to a certain direction. The destination will come later, but the direction is I turn my back on sin. We don't diminish the sin. We don't try to manage the sin. We're not trying to manipulate God. It's not simply a grieving or a confession, but it shows up now in the rest of your life. So here is how repentance and faith then come together because they're really two sides of the same coin. You are once living a life that chased sin, but you turn and you trust Jesus, and now you chase after him. Right? If you were to put it in a picture, that is what it looks like. Second Chronicles 7, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, right? it's this, this image of you're, you're looking at God now and you're turning from the life that you used to live, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. If you know the story of the prodigal son, that's his life. He turned his back on the father, chose a lavish life of sin, and then he hits rock bottom, and he has a turning point where he then turns his back again on the sinful life, back to the father, and goes to say sorry, to be in a relationship with him. And in all of this, it is free. In all of this, it is not achieved. It is the simple act of turning and trusting in him and no longer loving your old life. And in that moment, you are saved. It is a, a, a moment in time. And if you have never made that decision to turn and trust in Jesus, again, it's as simple as a moment, a decision, today. And in that instance, Christ's death is attributed to you. Your sins are taken away. You are no longer in judgment. 
You are no longer now going to face death, full stop, but you will die and be raised to life. You are adopted as a child of God. In that moment. Right? It's, it's completely mind-boggling that it is not achieved or inherited, that it is by faith and repentance. And for the Christian, from that moment on, every moment after that is trust and turning. Right? It's faith and repentance every day of our lives because we, we forget God, we turn away from God, we get distracted by things. Oh, look at that, that's pretty. And we look at that and we trust and turn day after day. That's how we start and that's how we walk. Let me close. At the end of all our lives, we will stand before God. And He will ask you, why should I let you into my presence for all eternity? Uh, Why should I let you spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth? And what would you say to Him? If your answer begins with, because I, then you've got it wrong. Because I have achieved these certain things, because I've gone to church, because I read my Bible back to front and upside down, or because I inherited it, I was born a Christian, because I have enough faith, none of those answers will do. Our response must be because Jesus. Because Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the dead. Because Jesus paid the price of my sins. Because Jesus is my righteousness. Because I am with Jesus and he is with me. Because Jesus has done it all. And I've turned and placed my trust in him. He's the reason why you should let me in. That is what a Christian is. And if you have never made that decision to follow after Jesus and no longer pursue sin, I want to invite you to make that decision today. It will change everything. And in that moment, you will be free from the weight and the burden of your mistakes and your sins. And your eternity will be secure, no matter what happens from this moment on. And if you have already made that decision, you're sitting here as a Christian, I invite you to do that again. Not because it saves you, but because you were saved. Turn and trust in Jesus again today. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. And after I pray, the praise team will will sing a song. And again, uh, we can't sing because of the restrictions. And so as you sit there, I want you to be prayerful and think about the words and make that your heart's confession to God. But, you know, before we do that, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I want to invite you to make this your prayer. Now, this prayer does not save you, but maybe it will express the trust and the turning that you are going to do in your heart. So let me pray. And even though you don't have perfect faith, if you have enough faith to make this your prayer, you can be a Christian. Let me pray. I'm going to pray, sorry, I believe, thank you, please. Sorry, I believe, thank you, please. Lord God, I am sorry. 
I haven't given you the place in my life that you deserve. I have gone my own way. I have sinned and done wrong in word, in thought, and action. I am sorry for my sins. I turn from them in repentance. I believe you died for me, bearing my sins in your body on the cross. And I trust that you are my Lord and Savior. I thank you that I am now forgiven. I thank you for your great love toward me. Please help me from today to follow you daily. Please take control of my life. Please give me the strength that I may keep my eyes on you. Amen.